Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We do have bad and crazy martinis today, but we still have a good one. So after yesterday's all-good lineup, we're back to the usual format today. We're brought to you by Tommy John. Get comfortable at TommyJohn.com slash martini. Save 15% on your first order. Much more on Tommy John in just a little bit here. Jim, let's talk about the good news, and it's hard to get better news than this, and hopefully this is considered good news across the political spectrum. NPR. Two new peer-reviewed studies are showing a sharp drop in mortality among hospitalized COVID-19 patients. The drop is seen in all groups, including older patients and those with underlying conditions, suggesting that physicians are getting better at helping patients survive their illness. Quote, we find that the death rate has gone down substantially, says Leora Horwitz, a doctor who studies population health at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine and an author on one of the studies, which looked at thousands of patients from March to August. The study, which was of a single health system, finds that mortality has dropped among hospitalized patients by 18 percentage points since the pandemic began. Patients in the study had a 25.6% chance of dying at the start of the pandemic. They now have a 7.6% chance. So, I mean, it's still a higher risk than other diseases, Jim, but uh, obviously the medical community has had time to address this uh, in terms of uh, effective therapies and so forth. So the fact that we're heading in the right direction by such a drastic percentage is very good news. Yeah, uh, you know, pretty much since the beginning of this pandemic, I have been beating the drum for the the take it seriously camp. Um, I've been frustrated with certain people inside government and outside government who I think are kind of uh, excessively optimistic and downplaying the risk, but there's no getting around the, this, you know, important development in fact, which is that you are less likely to die of this virus than you were back in March and April. And that is a hugely important piece of good news. Um, You know, we shouldn't be surprised by this. You know, week by week, month by month, doctors get more knowledge about how the virus attacks the body, what kind of treatments are most effective. Uh, You may recall back in the spring, there was this, you know, people realized that people were having trouble breathing, you lie them on their stomach. That had a significant impact in, in a, you know, some, not all cases, but a significant number of cases. Um, we talked about the various therapeutics. We talked about the development of artificial antibodies. The longer you can, you know, there's some who argue that uh, even if the vaccine coming at the pace that it is, most of us are going to get it. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but it's probably safe to say that very few of us want to social distance forever. At some point, we're going to touch a doorknob or be in some sort of public place and somebody somewhere is going to end up getting it to us. If you're going to get this virus at some point, you want to put it off as long as you can, because the longer you put it off, the more treatments there will be on ready for your market, the more doctors will know about it, the more there'll be a well-established procedure of what works and what doesn't work, and it'll get you there. Some people accuse me of pessimism. For all of my warnings about this, for all of my points, people take this thing seriously. Do not, you know, I mean, you know, all these recommendations about social distancing, you want to avoid crowds. I have no problem with masks. I'm not exactly trying to run a decathlon in them. Um, if you want to get together with friends, you want to do it in a socially distanced manner, fine. That's, you know, smart. Um, you know, take this thing seriously. But your chances of dying from this are much less than they were earlier in the year. And that is enormously important good news. 
Yeah, absolutely right. And so the U.S. medical community, once again, uh, the very best. And uh, they obviously had uh, very little time to prepare for, for the virus coming here. But over time, they have certainly gotten much more effective at treating this. And uh, it's been obvious, as uh, I'm sure you've known people, I've known people who have seen their loved ones uh, contract the, the COVID and, uh, and come out uh, fine on the other side, uh, hopefully for the long term. So, uh, Jim, obviously, this pandemic has gone on now for more than seven months. Our, our routines are a little bit different now. Uh, some have uh, spent a lot more time at home than they thought. Uh, others have, uh, with that free time, maybe taken up exercise or some other activity to, to improve their health. Either way, you want to be comfortable. You know, the original, I have to say, Tommy John uh, intro here said, are you on your fourth Zoom call of the day, but you don't want to wear pants? Well, that's why you need Tommy John. But Jim, Given the news of this week, we recommend at least one layer, probably two. Let's go with two layers, uh, given everything we've seen this week when it comes to Zoom calls. Uh, but Tommy John is definitely the way to go. And if you want to stay comfortable, not only in a pandemic, but every day, Tommy John's the way to go. From working hard to playing hard, when you start every morning in Tommy John underwear, you're that much more comfortable. So you can do everything better. That's why Tommy John underwear doesn't have customers, they have converts. Because with dozens of comfort innovations, once you've tried Tommy John, you will never go back. With breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands, it moves with you. And in fact, Tommy John underwear is listed on GQ's latest 10 Essentials with Kevin Hart, the popular diminutive comedian. It says they have 96% four-star plus reviews and more than 12 million pairs sold but you just have to try them for yourself. Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. The legs never ride up and you're covered with their, yes, their no wedgie guarantee. Does any other product like this have a no wedgie guarantee? I highly doubt it. Uh, one of the nice perks of hosting the podcast is to try out the products of our various sponsors. Can't speak highly enough for Tommy John. Very, very nice. Very, very comfortable. Not just the underwear, but they sent a very soft and comfortable t-shirt made with a material they call micromodal. Don't know how it's made, but it's amazingly soft and comfortable. And they also sent some lounge pants that I believe I have worn every evening since then. So they have a wide variety of products for both men and women. Tommy John underwear feels so good. It's barely there, but you'll be glad to know that it actually is there. And their best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee means there's no risk. So try Tommy John. And if you don't love them, they're free. So get that much more comfortable at tommyjohn.com slash martini and save 15% on your first order. Save 15% right now at tommyjohn.com slash martini, tommyjohn.com slash martini. All right, Jim. Tommy John will make you feel comfortable. Democrats in control of Congress and the White House and your right to work are not a good combination. That will definitely make you not feel comfortable. This is from Forbes. Kel Cunningham, the Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in North Carolina, has generated headlines recently with an extramarital sex scandal, yet it is a policy revelation unearthed last week about Cunningham, whose race could determine control of the Senate that could strike many employers, investors, and site selectors as the greater scandal. It turns out that North Carolina voters are finding out just now, about two weeks prior to the election, that Cal Cunningham supports federal legislation that would repeal North Carolina's right-to-work law, along with those on the books in 26 other states. Right-to-work laws, which have been around for 80 years, protect workers from being forced to join a union and pay dues as a condition of employment. As they will constantly tell you, 
you, that doesn't mean you can't join a union. It just means you have the right not to. While it hasn't been reported by North Carolina newspapers, it turns out that Cal Cunningham quietly promised the Communication Workers of America Union that he would vote for the PRO Act, meaning Cunningham supports a federal repeal of North Carolina's right to work law. That position, which is at odds with the moderate image that Cunningham's campaign has sought to portray, means that a victory by both Biden and Cunningham this November could result in a national right to work prohibition. Obviously, the bigger issue is if Biden wins and the Democrats maintain control of the House and also win the Senate. But it uh, goes on uh, from there because um, this is all based on California's AB5, which was a total disaster. It's basically blown up the gig economy because it's made employers who uh, employ freelance workers from time to time have to provide full benefits. And employers can't do that for people who just contribute once in a while. And so they've had to end relationships with these freelance workers and uh, freelance workers have been uh, hard pressed to find work. There have been some accommodations made with additional changes to the law, but this would be an absolute disaster. And if you wonder whether Biden and Kamala Harris are really serious about this, the Forbes article quotes them. Biden, quote, we should change the federal law so that there is no right to work allowed anywhere in the country. Kamala Harris, quote, banning right to work laws, that needs to happen. It already passed the Democratic House, obviously. It went nowhere in the Republican-controlled Senate right now. But if uh, that control changes, Jim, uh, there could be a lot of pain for a lot of people in a lot of states. You know, one of the things that is particularly infuriating about this election cycle is that on, let's see, 7 o'clock, October 19th, that's Monday, the Biden campaign called a lid, meaning that uh, Biden would not be making any further remarks. He was not expected to take any further questions, no further public appearances. They called a lid until Thursday. All right. I mean, it's basically there'll be no events with Biden this week. And this is, you know, we're, it's October uh, 19th, 20th, 21st. This is, you know, crunch time. This is, uh, you know, millions of Americans have already voted. Millions of Americans are voting today. This is, you know, what you'd presume most candidates would want to be out there making their, taking their, making their arguments, taking their messages. And Biden is not doing that. Why is Biden not doing that? Well, because he's decided that it's wiser to simply be a blank slate to let Trump go out there and generate his own controversies and to simply be not Trump. And that that's what he's running as. I'm surprised he hasn't changed his name from Joe Biden to Joe not Trump. That's, you know, you look at polling numbers and ask people, why are they supporting Joe Biden? Well, it's gotten up a little better than it used to be. But by and large, people are not voting for Joe Biden because they love him, because they think he's an inspiring leader, because they think he's, you know, uh, exactly what the country needs at this moment. They just really can't stand President Trump. And he's fine with that. If that gets you the win, that's all you need. The problem is, is that that doesn't really win you a mandate for any of these complicated legislative changes they want to enact. And it's not like Biden is going out there saying, I will destroy right to work. It's not like Cal Cunningham is out there saying, I will destroy right to work. It's not like Biden and Cunningham or any other Senate Democrat are saying, I have decided the gig economy is so bad that I would rather have you completely unemployed and dependent upon government assistance than continuing to work in the gig economy. Very few people go out there and say the, the, the AB5 in California has been a sterling success that has made so many freelancers happy. Like, you know, if you like the arts community, if you like illustrations, if you like freelance writing, if you like uh, most of the theater community, look, most theaters don't hire people for long stretches with full benefits. You know, so you're doing it from show to show. You're doing it from movie productions, right? You know, most you know, institutions of the arts are not in the business of creating something and it's permanent. 
most everything they do is temporary. It's just the nature of the beast of what they do. You get a book contract, you're working on illustrating one book. You work um, uh, singing, you know, every, everything is a temporary gig. So what, one particular concert, one particular uh, series of events. That's just the nature of it. So once they enacted AB5, they really hadn't thought through, hey, how many of these institutions are going to be able to offer all those benefits that we in the state government think that they should have? None of this is really being discussed right now, in part because Biden has called a lid for several days. And this is, you know, when Biden and other Democrats try to enact this, I am hoping they encounter a great deal of pushback. And I hope they don't get enough uh, votes to do this. But you know, recognize, America, if you elect these guys, these are the potential consequences. There is always a chance they'll say, you know what? You know, we don't care that we didn't really run on this. This is what was, we secretly wanted to do all along. And we're going to ram it through and hope that we don't get punished too bad in the midterms in 2022. It is a potential for disaster. I mean, this happens every four years. I remember in early 2009, Barack Obama suddenly started, shortly after he was inaugurated, Barack Obama and his uh, administration suddenly started talking about capping the charitable deduction for the highest earners. Now, America had a lot of problems in 2008, 2009. There were a lot of people who were frustrated things. Charitable deductions was not really what most people were upset about. Oh, these, these rich people are donating to charities just because they want the tax write-off. Okay, but in the process, they're giving money to charities. It's kind of a good thing. We want that. We want to encourage that. So this, this bait and switch is so familiar to us. But here it is once again. And people like you and I are kind of sounding the alarm. People, pay attention to this. I hope they pay attention, Greg, because otherwise we are en route for some very bad policies to be enacted without anything resembling a public mandate to do this. Democratic control of anything is a bad thing. Democratic control of everything in Washington could be an absolute disaster for job creation, uh, the Green New Deal. Uh, obviously, Biden would probably get his public option, which is just kind of a slow walk to uh, Medicare for all. I mean, there's on and on and on. Uh, Democratic control is a disaster. Vote accordingly. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go to our crazy martini now. Jim, we've talked about this from time to time. The long knives on the left are out for California Senator Dianne Feinstein, at least as of this recording, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, even before the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, there was already rumblings that she was too old and not up to the job of combating Lindsey Graham and the Republicans on the Barrett nomination. Keep in mind, just two years ago, she was the one who sat on the... Uh, Christine Blasey Ford allegation against Brett Kavanaugh from July to September. Uh, definitely carrying the left's water in that situation, but apparently that's not remembered uh, two years later. But at the end of the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, Dianne Feinstein said this to Chairman Lindsey Graham. I just want to thank you. Uh, this has been one of the best set of hearings that I've participated in. And I want to thank you for your fairness and the opportunity of going back and forth. It leaves one with a lot of hopes, a lot of questions, and even some ideas of perhaps some good bipartisan legislation thank we you. can put together to make this great country even better. So thank you thank so you. much for your leadership. 
So Jim, obviously that is unforgivable to say anything nice about somebody else from the other party, particularly over a contentious issue such as the Supreme Court nomination. But beyond that, I think there's more to the fact that the Democrats don't want Dianne Feinstein in a position of authority anymore because we reported, and initially The Hill reported this back in September, when the first time the court packing issue came up, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who would chair the Senate Judiciary Committee if Democrats win back the majority, is nixing the idea of the legislative filibuster, which would be a necessary first step to adding seats to the Supreme Court. Because then I'd take legislation. It's not just a rule change, like when uh, uh, Mitch nuked the filibuster for Supreme Court nomination. So, Jim, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, uh, speaking to reporters yesterday, here's the question, here's his answer. Okinawa, criticizing Senator Feinstein for her handling of the hearings. I was wondering what you make of this criticism and do you plan to make any changes to the Judiciary Committee? Okay, I've had a long and serious talk with Senator Feinstein. That's all I'm going to say about it right now. Not exactly the most ringing endorsement you can get if you're Diane Feinstein. So what do you make for the fact that uh, she's failed the purity test that would appear for the hard left? You know, this is one of those rare situations where uh, I'm going to be honest with listeners. I'm not sure how I feel about this. In part, you know, <laughs> it's a bad sign if Chuck Schumer has decided that Dianne Feinstein is too conciliatory and too nice and too respectful to her colleagues like Lindsey Graham to continue to chair the committee. Generally, the Senate is, as they say, the saucer in which the tea is supposed to cool. The, the Senate is not supposed to be rubber stamping everything that comes along from the uh, the House. It's supposed to be, as they like to call themselves, the greatest deliberative body. And that ideally means that, you know, the, one, the two sides in the Senate don't hate each other and they can stand to be in the same room to each other. And then maybe even they like each other, even when they disagree over the issues. If, if that was the straw that broke the camel's back, then that speaks very badly of Chuck Schumer and other Democrats. That having been said, Diane Feinstein's getting pretty long in the tooth. Over the last couple of years, you and I have discussed a couple of times where she has said things that she's denied saying things that she had said the day before, uh, contradicted statements from her staff and other things that indicate maybe her fastball isn't as fast as it used to be. I hope she's well. Um, I'm not even going to get into the, her, drive, her personal driver being a Chinese spy for a bunch of years. There's a certain argument that, you know what, thank you for your service, uh, Senator Feinstein. It's time to give you the gold watch and let you ride off into the sunset and let somebody else take over. And if that's the reasoning, well, it's not like I can say that's utterly unreasonable. There's one other kind of factor to this, which is that, you know, we've seen a couple times this week, we've talked about the Amy Comey Barrett hearings and how well they went. And lo and behold, the new poll out today has, again, majority support for her. And that during the course of the hearings, public support expanded. Morning Consult, once which has been showing really good numbers for Barrett this whole time, has her best numbers yet in, in the latest update this week. So in a, in a three-week period, Amy Coney Barrett has become even more popular. And the hearings did not do anything to, to scuff her or, or damage her standing or anything. And if you're a Democrat, I can see why you're frustrated by that. But in the end, is that really Dianne Feinstein's fault? Or does it really just reflect that Amy Coney Barrett is just a really good nominee? She was really prepared for this, and she knew exactly that. And she didn't even need notes. She held up the card, as we all you know. So, so like, I don't know if it's a reasonable expectation to say Feinstein should have been able to find a way to, to derail that Barrett nomination. It probably was never in the cards. It's probably going to be a party line vote sometime next week. Maybe it is time to replace Dianne Feinstein. I can't say, you know, it's not like you and I are going to run to the ramparts to defend her and all of her, her uh, votes and all of her stances and all of her statements over the last couple of years. But the idea is that, you know, if, if she has become too, you know, too reasonable, 
too uh, too insufficiently partisan and nasty for the Demo for the progressive grassroots, then that's a terrible reason to yank somebody from a key committee. And uh, I'm hoping Schumer doesn't go this way. It doesn't seem like it, but it is a reflection of just how much pressure Democratic Party leaders feel from their you know hard left grassroots. Well, like other things with the Democrats, they're going to wait until after the election, I think, to actually take a position on this. Yeah, there's no tear shed for Dianne Feinstein. I mean, she's been an absolutely uh, reliable partisan Democrat for as long as she's been in office. And uh, I, I looked her up yesterday when Chuck Schumer would not give her that vote of confidence publicly. And in her last three years, the first three years of the Trump administration, her ranking from Americans for Democratic Action, which is a hard left uh, uh, rating system, 95, 90, and 100. So the idea that she is somehow uh, too squishy for the far left God help us if, uh, if they actually get power after this election. But uh, coming to Dianne Feinstein's aid, which might not be uh, to her benefit, actually, her fellow 87-year-old on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley, who was chairman during the Kavanaugh and Gorsuch hearings, quote, Democrats calling for Senator Feinstein to step down from judiciary ranking members should think twice about their sexist and ageist motivations against an outstanding legislator and icon in her own rights. Attacks on Senator Feinstein are totally unjustified. Well, uh, I would say some attacks on Senator Feinstein are very justified, especially considering what she did during the Kavanaugh process. But uh, what, what's happening now is a Democratic Party so rigidly moving left that uh, any hint of moderation, there's just no tolerance for it anymore. Uh, Greg, we should also note that Grassley added, why would Democrats get rid of someone so young who's just starting her career? <laughs> no, he didn't really say that. Yeah. We got some old senators out there. They're the two oldest, I believe. But uh, here's here's the scorecard. Grassley has two more years in his term. He has not said whether he's running again in 2022, and he would be 89 running again. Uh, Feinstein just got reelected in 2018, so she will be there, uh, assuming she stays healthy and alive, till 2024, which would put her over 90. And uh, I believe Senator Inhofe, who is 86, is running for reelection right now. So. Uh, there are uh, quite a few folks uh, who have been there a while who may be there a while longer yet. So we'll see. Jim, quite a day. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget about our friends over at Tommy John. Hey, if you want to stay comfortable, Tommy John's the place to go. TommyJohn.com slash martini and save 15% on your first order. TommyJohn.com slash martini. Also, please remember to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. We always are very grateful for your kind reviews and five-star ratings. Remember, also, you can get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.